So um, here we are at Zechariah 12, 13, and 14, the final three chapters in this, uh, in, in this book. Um, before we get started reading and interpreting and stuff, I want to ask you a question. When I say the word restore, uh, what, what do you think of? What comes to mind? Either immediately or what does that mean to you? Correction of something that's wrong. Bringing back to an original state. Anything else? Yeah, resetting. Yeah, I I think of my iPhone that stops working and gets slow and gets gets a little clogged up and stuff and and then uh, just starting welcome welcome come in come in and uh, you know you uh, restore two factory defaults and all of a sudden it works like a whistle again you know and you're like oh my goodness this was such a magnificent device uh, and but the, you know the all the stuff it's gotten clogged up with um, over time has kind of uh, made it not work as, uh, as smoothly as it did before Somehow I also think of like Habitat for Humanity. If you like are like doing a de demolition project, they have like they have like these locations where you can bring your your kitchen cabinets or whatever um, that are and it, they're called like Habitat's Restore, like like a store that's reselling like uh, you know previously used goods. So. Um, uh, which has actually nothing to do with the meaning of it in this, uh, but those are the things that come to my mind anyways, right? Um, so that's, that's really what um, Zechariah chapter 12, 13, and 14 are about. If you remember, we said the book of Zechariah was largely divided into kind of two halves. Like the first part was all these like really fantastic visions that are akin to reading the book of Revelation. Like you, you would do really well to have some kind of some kind of commentary or something because they're so some of them are so way out there it's hard to kind of make heads or tails of them um and then the second half of the book was all of these messianic prophecies so now we are at like the the like the 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 end of the book and it's also at the like the end of the messianic prophecies so these are prophecies um, largely about like the second coming of Christ. So, and there you'll find that there are some things here that are actually very analogous to things in the book of Revelations, right? We're talking very much about Jesus' second coming and his restoring his kingdom and his restoring us. And uh, when you think about it, it's actually a book that's this part of it. Sorry, there are actually chapters that are really full of grace. Um, and... Uh, just like on the topic, before we kind of get in, into it, um, I was at a funeral yesterday, yesterday, yes, and uh, um, I was asked to speak uh, and say a word of comfort, and uh, the, the, for the, the Coptic Orthodox funeral rite for women, the men and women and children, and the, the readings will be slightly different, and some of the responses will be slightly different, so... It was it was a woman and the the that had had passed on and the psalm that precedes the gospel the the psalm said return to your rest O my soul 
for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Um, and if we think like, what does the word rest mean? Uh, like for you and for me, it usually means like recuperation after a certain period of exhaustion or fatigue or something. But in a certain sense, it's uh, kind of nonsensical to think that that applies to God. Like, so you know, on, on the seventh day, God rested. Like, was God exhausted? Was creation so tiresome? You know, he's running back and forth all across the globe, you know, making all of these wonder, wonders of the world. And, you know, and, and so he was exhausted or, you know, or was he kind of like moving the tectonic plates around? You know what I mean? And they were just so heavy. Like it just it kind of doesn't make sense that he was tired. So what does it mean that he rested? You know what it's like uh, th this afternoon, Mary uh, asked me, my wife asked me to cook for her her favorite dish, right? So, so I, you know, I cooked it and I was working really fast to try to finish everything in time and so on. And, and, I, and I did it and then, and then I tasted it and it needed a little bit of this. So I added that and then it needed a little bit of that and I added that and then I tasted it. Ah, it's just right, you know? And then there was nothing else to do. Like, don't touch it. If you do anything, you, you'll ruin it. You know, don't just add another pinch of salt or just, just leave it alone. Why? Because it's just right. Just so. And so there's nothing to be done to it other than to enjoy it. You know, and that is a moment of rest. And in a certain sense, God finds his rest. It says in the Psalms, it says, uh, and God finds his rest in his saints. So in our, in our return to holiness, God finds his rest. Because there's no more work for him to do. We're just right. Like a, like a spinach casserole dish for my wife. <laughs> you know? Just, just ah, right. Um... And there's so much more that could be said about the rest of God, right? But God finds his rest in our restoration, in a certain sense, not to play with the words too much, right? And so you'll find that these, uh, these chapters 12, 13, and 14 are talking about the coming of the day of the Lord. And I think this word, um, in that day, or, the, or in the day, or in the day of the Lord, are mentioned 16 times um, in these passages. So we're it's talking a lot about in that day, you know? And so what do we believe about that? So you and I struggle in our life of repentance, in our life of holiness now. Um, and, uh, you know, we do sort of, some of, of us do better than others and some of us, and all of us have better days and weeks uh, than, other, and, than others. Um, so, uh, and then what happens when Christ comes to bring us home? Like, what if, you know, like, what if I haven't achieved perfect holiness yet? And, and we, we, we have read in the lives of the saints, some saints who did really achieve perfect holiness here on earth, you know, uh, you know, and like, and then there was nothing left for them to do. St. Mark the ascetic, you know was like, you, you know, lived in a cave on a mountain, was tortured by demons for like 80 years, you know, and then finally God told him, I will give you rest. And then like angels took care of him for another 20 years, 
you know, and he lived to be uh, like 120 something years old, you know, and for 20 years, literally angels cared for him day and night. They brought him a table down from heaven with like, you know, bread and honey and milk and, you know what I mean? Like literally, you know, and his struggle, his, his struggle in holiness was completed. Um, and St. Karas and, and so, so, many other, so many other saints, you know, we, so it's, it's not impossible at all. Uh, but I'm not that person. And what if I don't make it to the finish line before my time comes? Well, what happens, you know? What happens to that deficit, that, that lack, that part that was, that was that, that potential of holiness that was not achieved? And that was, that, does that, like, and where is God's rest? So what we believe is that, that God is gracious and his grace is to give us what we don't deserve. And so what he does is he, he then takes us and carries us to the finish line. Um, so we struggle in our life of holiness here to honor him. And, and, and in that in that moment when we leave this on the earth for the last time, close our eyes here for the last time and open them in the splendor of his glory, he invites us into his glory to perfect restoration, to perfect healing, right? And those who accept that, God takes them and fulfills their, their restoration. So that's another way that you can kind of understand these three chapters, you know? Um, so with that introduction, let's dive right into it and, and see all of the promises of restoration God has for you and me. And like I, like I was praying at the beginning, like I'm begging God and begging you to see these promises as, um, yes, like messianic and end times and apocalyptic, like towards like the apocalypse, towards like the end and so on. But I'm I'm also begging God and begging my own soul to see these as personal, you know, as, as uh, you know, that I, I have they, no fear of having any shortage or any lack in the eyes of God because he already has a plan to bring me to the fullness of the stature of Christ, like it says in Ephesians 4. So I'm not, I'm not worried for myself, you know. So with that introduction, let's, uh, let's dive right into, uh, let's dive right into uh, Zechariah 12. Who, who'd like to read for us? Anybody? Yusuf, you want to read for us? Yeah. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every house with confusion, and its rider with madness. I will open the eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with lions. And the governors of Judah shall say in their hearts, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pen in a wood pile, and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all 
surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before him. Stop there, and then can you read that? So that's twelve verses one through nine, and then let's go ahead and read chapter fourteen verses one through seven. You'll notice that the beginning of Zechariah twelve and the beginning of Zechariah fourteen are very similar. They're almost analogous. So we'll read we'll read them, and we'll kind of interpret them as as a unit. Yeah, thank you very much. So, um, the the first few verses in chapter 12 talk about how um, Jerusalem will be attacked. And remember here, whenever we're talking about Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the city of God, Jerusalem is the dwelling place of God. You can always take that to be a word about yourself, right? Um, and Jesus promises us, if they hated me, they will hate you, if they you know, uh, persecuted me, they will persecute you, and so on. So we, we know that, it tells us in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So we know that the attack is coming, right? And so in the first few verses in, um, in chapter 12, he's telling us that, Behold, I'll make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples, when they lay siege against Judah and against Jerusalem. So he's saying they will lay siege against Judah and against Jerusalem, right? Um, and in verse 3, And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples, who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. He makes it very clear that it will be attacked, but this time, this time when it will be attacked, it will be like whoever, here drunkenness is like being poisoned. Like whoever tries to touch Jerusalem will be poisoned. And whoever tries to tear it apart, it will like, like you know, tear the stones of Jerusalem apart. The stones will crush him, right? And if we read in 14 uh, verses 1 and 2, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst. I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. 
um, and the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, half the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So here we have a, a much darker picture, right? Um, and he, but he ends with, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off. So there will be a small selection of the people which will survive, right? And it's from those people that all the good will come, will come afterwards. And if you notice, he says, uh, uh, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. So from the fact that he says all nations to be gathered against Jerusalem kind of sh lends credence to the fact that this isn't, maybe this is not talking about uh, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in, in 70 AD, um, but maybe this is like talking about, uh, really about the end times because it, it could be Rome. I mean, Rome was like the mother of all nations at the time. It was the empire of the world. Um, but, it, you know, strictly speaking, it wasn't necessarily all nations. So really kind of more apocalyptic. Yes, please, yes. Yes. No, the promise is that there's a, there's a beautiful passage in Galatians 3, which explains to us that the, I mean, it's really, it's really extremely significant if we, if we read it carefully. Um, you'll find St. Paul is telling us that all of the promises of God were made, are made to Christ. And so all of the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ and they were they are true in Christ and they are for Christ really for nobody else and so the promises of God are true to those who are in Christ you know and he explains in Galatians 3 second half of the chapter Galatians 3.16 Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. He's quoting, obviously, from the Old Testament. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. And he goes on and on. And he's trying to say that the promise which was made to Abraham was made to Abraham and to his seed in the singular, not the plural. So it's not the children of Abraham, but the, the one from whom Abraham is to come, which is Christ, right? And then if you go down to the very end of the chapter, he says, for all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as of you are baptized into Christ have put on Christ and there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Right? And so what St. Paul is saying here is pretty drastic. What he's saying here is that there is no chosen people of God. There is a chosen person.
person of God, who is Jesus, who has opened his arms wide to receive us all in him. And whoever accepts the call is then in Christ. And then all of the promises which are to Christ are to those who are in him. So it's no longer like an ethnic pedigree, you know, but it's by belonging in Christ. So, uh, it answers the question. So we'll we'll skip back to uh, to so that's so that's the first part of uh, that's the first part of Zechariah twelve and fourteen is talking about Zachari- about uh, about Jerusalem being attacked. A bit of a darker picture in fourteen than um, than uh, than in twelve. In uh, in uh, chapter twelve, he says uh, when he says about their drunkenness, um, a cup was oftentimes a very a symbolic of of judgment. You find that in the book of Revelation several times, right? Um, and also, you find this business of the stone. Um, there's the prophecy about Jesus being the cornerstone, um, and wh- whoever Whoever trips on that on that stone will stumble, but on whomever it falls, it will crush him to powder. Um, that comes up in the Gospels, um, and this is kind of re- referring to that um, uh, in Zechariah twelve three, when he says, "And it shall happen that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it." So you have all nations of the earth are gathered against it in chapter twelve, and then in chapter fourteen. So you have that kind of, that similarity in both of them, right? Then in verses, uh, in, in Revelation, if you, if, if, sorry, I mean, I may have making you jump around. If you go to Zechariah 14, back to 14, if we go to verses 3 through 7, you find that it says that, that the Lord will appear. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards north and half towards the south. What's he talking about here? Where, where did Jesus ascend to heaven? Um, when we were fortunate with a small group to go and visit the Holy Land, uh, the, the Church of the Ascension is where the ascension is you know, believed to have taken place, uh, and it's on, on the top of the Mount of Olives. So from where he went, he's saying here he will return. Whether to understand that literally or figuratively, right? it's talking about that Jesus will return, as, and that's what the angels said when the people were, the Christians at the time, were followers of Jesus at the time, were looking up, and going and watching him ascend to heaven, and they were kind of mesmerized by the fact that he was ascending, like floating in the air and and, and floating up to heaven. Um, the angel said, "Why? Why are you like? Why are you looking like? You know, for, he will come back as he went. You know." Um, so that's the, the reference there to the Mount of um, to the Mount of Olives, right? And 
very practically again for you and for me. Um, I shared this story once before. Um, I'll share it with you briefly again. One of my friends was doing mission work in Rwanda during the Civil War. Um, and um, he was, uh, I mean, the mission station he was working for got completely destroyed. Um, and they tried to evacuate him. And he started to see all these orphan children in the streets. Uh, and he felt terrible for them. So he refused to leave. And he just started to collect these children and to try as he, as he, what he can to take care of them. Um, anyhow, uh, after this, when the Civil War started to subside, I had given him a call to check on him and see how he's doing and stuff like that. It was nearly impossible to reach this guy, obviously. Uh, and uh, I was, he kind of, he told me, you know, you don't, your voice doesn't sound great, John, are you okay? And I told him, yeah, I'm just a bit discouraged, a few things here and there and so on. And, but I mean, like, who, who, <laughs> I feel like I'm having a bad hair day <laughs> compared to you, you know? And he says to me, look, I want to tell you something. Like, when, when in the darkest moments um, is when you know that the light of Christ is just about to shine. You know, when things get the, the, the darkest in that darkest moment. And the best part of it is not that God is, is, is not that you will be rescued from the, 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 ter the terrible situation that you're in, but it's who will rescue you, you know. And he told me, like, as, as, a, as a lover of God, you know, what's the most beautiful thing you could ever imagine seeing? And I told him, well, Jesus himself he said, and what would you pay? How much would you would be willing to pay for Jesus to appear to you? right now and I told him I don't know uh, I don't know I don't know I'd be willing to pay anything you know just just to see Jesus for a second for a moment you know and he said and he said to me well you have tons of promises that in your darkest moment God himself will come to rescue you the champion of heaven himself will come riding on his white horse to come and to save you. And there's a beautiful image of that in Revelation 19 of, of Christ, the champion of heaven, leading his armies out into Armageddon, into which is this is making reference to, into the final battle, you know. And his name is written on his thigh, true and faithful one, you know. And he's riding forth with such a beautiful image. And he's riding forth to save me, you know. And he's telling me what a small price it is to pay our suffering. A moment ago, you, were tell, you told me you were willing to pay anything to see Jesus, right? So you will see Jesus. He will rescue you. And the small price you have to pay is that he has to rescue you from something. You know, he can't rescue you from paradise, you know. So the small price you have to pay is your suffering. Isn't it worth it? And hearing this from somebody who's in the middle of a Rwandan civil war, rescuing children, not really rescuing, collecting children who've watched their parents be shot and burned alive, and he's trying to make, you know, makeshift schools for them and a makeshift orphanage for them with no money, no resources, nothing really, you know. Um, 
was, uh, was, was really inspiring, you know? And so here in verse three, it says, then the Lord will go forth. And that's the image I have of, in Revelation 19 of the Lord going forth, riding on his white horse. His name is written on his thigh, true and faithful one. And he will fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, you know? And when a, when a warrior king stands somewhere, it's like standing and planting his banner planting his flag saying you know we're we are victorious you know um so that's kind of that's the that's the imagery that's uh, that's the imagery really that's brought here in uh in in the second sort of the second part of uh of uh, zechariah 14 the beginning of zechariah 14 um then he says then they shall flee through my mountain valley for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal, reach very far. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah. There was a huge earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. Now, this could be talking about Armageddon or what day was there that in, in broad daylight there was no light? You know, the, the cross, uh, you know, at, Jesus was crucified at noon, you know, at you know, 9 p.m. or noon, 9 a.m. or noon, sorry. And, and, the, and the, the, the sun hid its rays and the moon would not give its light. And there's actually historical evidence in Roman records to that day uh, that, that correlates roughly to, you know, 33 AD, you know, or, or roughly in that time. So it's very interesting that there's secu secular historical records that, that refer to that, right? So that this could very well be speaking about that, you know. And in the evening, 3 or 4 p.m., the light returned. So that's, so that's that verse, verse 7. If we go back to um, Zechariah 12, sorry for the skipping around, but we'll read now Zechariah 12, 4 through 9, which we kind of read already, and we'll, we'll in, interpret that, and then we'll compare that to Zechariah 14, 12 to 15. You don't need to remember the numbers. I'll, I'll guide you. So we're back in Revelation 12, verse 4. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its riders with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah. I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. When he talks here about horses and riders and chariots, that was the most uh, formidable like military weapon at the time. You know? So, like... If, 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 if World War III were to happen and people, were, nations or groups of nations, you know, I don't know, right, were to use their most powerful weapons in this day and age, what would they use? Yeah, nuclear bombs or whatever, right? So when he's talking about horses and riders here, he's saying like, you know, I will make their, like, I will make their, like, nuclear bombs not work. You know, um, and when he says, I'll strike their horses with blindness and so on. Right. 
Um, and in, uh, and in uh, uh, chapter 14, he's going to say something very, he's going to say something very similar, I believe. Um, yes, um, right? Uh, in, in chapter 14, verse 13, he says, It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. This is among the enemies. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Raise his hand against his neighbor's hand means will fight against his neighbor, right? Do you remember in the story of Gideon, right? God tells Gideon, O mighty man of valor, you're going to rescue my people from the Midianites, right? And, uh, and Gideon like sees the angel saying this to him and he, he looks and he looks behind him and he's like, I'm imagining this, you know, but he's like, which mighty man of valor? Like, who are you talking to? I'm the youngest person in my father's house, which is the smallest in, in, in you know, family in our clan, which is the smallest clan in our tribe, which is from the tribe of Benjamin. Like, we're the smallest of the smallest of the smallest of the smallest. Who, what are you talking about, right? Anyways, he gathers a, an army. He finally gets convinced after a series of messages from God, trials from God, that he is actually indeed the one. And then so he sets out to, to, to uh, gather an army. And then God tells him, no, 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 this army is way too big. And I'll tell you why this army is way too big, Gideon. Because if you conquer the Midianites with this army, you will say it was by your strength and by your power and by your might. He says, and then he, he whittles them down to 320 some, right? And they get this plan where they get torches and they put... They put clay pots on the torches and they go and they, they in three companies, in three parts, they surround the, the Midianites in, in the valley at night. And they all have trumpets, a trumpet in one hand and a torch with a clay pot on top of it in the other, right? And then when Gideon, you know, you know uh, blasts his trumpet, then the rest of them all blast their trumpet and smash the clay pots, right? And they do that. And then what happens? The Midianites are in the camp and they look around and just, they just see torches all around them in the hills, you know, and the sound of the smashing clay pots. And God puts a panic amongst them and they all start attacking each other, right? And by the time Gideon and his 320-some men make it into the valley, the, all the Midianites that are there have either killed each other or ran for the hills, right? Because now all they see is dead bodies around them. It's in the middle of the night. It's dark. So they freak out and they're like, oh my God, we're surrounded. We're, we're getting conquered. And so they run for the hills, right? And that's exactly what he is describing here when he says he'll strike their horses with blindness. And then in, in chapter 14, verse 13, he says that he'll send a panic amongst them. You know, when, when, when Jesus tells us, like, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain, he may be speaking about that literally, like at the time of Simon the shoemaker in, in, in Egypt when he literally the mountain of Mukatta moved. Or he may be speaking about the, the mountain of adversity, the mountain of obstacles. We often think of obstacles as hurdles that are unsurmountable, like a mountain, a hurdle the size of a mountain, you know? And... To think that like this mountain, this army, which is the size of a mountain, would suddenly be stricken with panic. Everybody, they all start attacking each other. They kill off half of each other and then they run for the hills. Is like, it's beyond our imagination. It's beyond 
when we're when we're up against a problem or we're up against uh, some kind of hurdle in life, we never think to ourselves that it could almost self-destruct, you know. But that's basically what he's describing here. Um, and may God give you and give me the faith to believe that that you know what it very well can. Um, for the purposes of keeping things rolling, I want to I want to jump right to. The end of Zechariah 12. The end of Zechariah 12 is talking, he, he switches the tone. So the beginning of 12 and 14, we said, were about Jerusalem gets attacked, Jesus appears, and you know, bada bim, bada boom, and the enemy is destroyed, right? In very simple terms, right? Now, when you get to Zechariah 12, 10 to the end, the tone changes completely. Somebody read it for us. he talking about here what do you think yeah they're talking about Jesus he's talking about Jesus and specifically yes his crucifixion and also remember all of these prophecies are apocalyptic and in his second coming Jesus himself says this prophecy, they shall look upon the one whom they pierced in, let me get you the cross reference, I have it here, John 19 uh, and John 20, right? And in, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, he talks about, he talks about, uh, uh, and when they, uh, when they raise up the Son of Man, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will gather all nations to himself. Um, but here specifically, then they will look on him, on, uh, they will look on me whom they pierced. It's very, it's like, it's very, very clear speaking about, about the crucifixion, right? Um, in our Coptic icons uh, of Christ, in our apocalyptic icons of Christ, we usually draw Christ with, with the, 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 the wounds of the cross, and they're not there as um, like as a guilt trip, like so forever he will have the wounds of the cross, uh, you know, and like you know as like uh, you know, so you remember what you did to me for forever, you know. No, not at all, right? They're there as a proof of the resurrection. What happens when Thomas puts his hand in Jesus' side? He puts his finger in the print of the nails. He puts his hand in Jesus' side. He falls before him and he says, my Lord and my God. 
It's, it's proof of the resurrection. It's proof of the cross, which is his love for us. You know, which is the cross is his love for us. Right? And so here he says, like, all, all the nations will mourn as they mourn for an only son. Then he says this, this bit, which is kind of cryptic. He says, In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. What's this business of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo? Well, the, one of the last kings of Jerusalem, Judah and Jerusalem, was this King Josiah. He was a really good king. He became king when he was really young and he repented for the sins of his fathers and their idolatry and he brought the people to a great repentance. But it was kind of too late. I mean, the writing was on the wall, you know, that Jerusalem would be destroyed and they would be taken away in captivity and so on, right? Um, and so he goes out to war, Josiah goes out to war and he's killed in the plain of Megiddo by a town called Hadad Ramon. There's other interpretations for it as well, but that's probably the most accepted and most common interpretation, right? And then it was clear that like, he was the last standing hope for Judah and Jerusalem and for their repentance. And then he was, and then he died. Yeah. So like after Yes. So, did that morning, did that morning be alluding to maybe like the second coming? Yes. Like when we see it, we'll be like, okay, he definitely. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, actually, and what you're saying is actually extremely important. Like for us as Christians, like Jesus rose from the dead and he lives forevermore, and like he's a winner, you know, like he won, right? Which is great. But if you, read, if you take yourself out of your Christian shoes and you read the gospel, Jesus only appeared in his resurrection to a select few. He appeared to his disciples. He appeared to the, the disciples on the road of Emmaus. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. And at the time of his ascension, he appeared to about 500 people or so. We find out in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and he ascended to heaven. So grand total, 500 and some people saw the resurrected Christ. To the rest of the world, his final like, public appearance was on the cross. Like, by all measures, like in broad strokes, Jesus died like, like a loser. And he was proclaiming a kingdom to come and in the kingdom of my father and in the kingdom of heaven and whatever and... You know, and uh, he's gone, right? Um, and so, by all measures, by all measures, it it if you and this is actually really this is actually really apologetic. By all measures, it doesn't really make sense that like the leader of this movement of mostly poor people and 
a handful of educated, select, you know, rich people, but most of the people who followed this movement and the leader of this movement, no matter how charismatic he was, died a loser. Was publicly humiliated, stripped naked, hung up high, spat upon, and eventually, you know, bled to death, asphyxiated, and died. And then, about 30 years later, the empire starts public persecution of the followers of this of this uh, this loser. Forgive me, Lord. Right, because. Their, their teachings are a threat to the empire. And they continue to persecute these people fiercely for another 200 years, at which time the whole empire becomes Christian. How does that add up? No money, no resources, charismatic leader is dead and died a horrific, shameful, publicly humiliating death. How does that add up? 30, just within 30 years, they're thought to be a threat to the empire and they must be eradicated. Persecution begins, goes on for over 200 years, at which time the emperor himself is convinced and becomes Christian and then declares religious freedom and eventually declares Christianity the religion of the empire. How did this, if, if, if there isn't something... There's got to be something more to the story than what I've mentioned, right? And the, the something more to the story that, has the, that I haven't mentioned is the resurrection, which made the followers of this loser who died have no fear of death, which made other people who were terrified of death like perk up and be like, what? Why are you people marching to your deaths joyfully? You know? It's very, uh, leaves you thinking, you know? Anyhow, back, back to the passage, right? So, and then he says here, and the land shall mourn, and the rest of it is talking about, about mourning, right? St. Isaac the Syrian says something very interesting about not about this passage, but about mourning in association with the revealing of Christ, either at the apocalypse or meeting him face to face in one's death, right? He says that when we die, we meet Christ and we get to encounter the fullness of his love. But we also then in that moment have full knowledge of our life. And he says, what person will look at the fullness of the love with which Christ has loved him and not be filled with regret and remorse, even for the smallest infidelity? Like, and he's using like terms like that relate kind of like to marriage, you know? Like if I have been even the least bit unfaithful to my wife, but I had no idea how much she loved me, but now I realize the fullness of her love for me. No matter how small my infidelity to her, it will be like, like infinitely painful to me and fill me with infinite regret and remorse. And he says, so who of us will be able to stand in that moment and not mourn? And it's kind of a bit of a dreary, <laughs> dreary picture, right? And then he says, 
And who would be able to comfort us in our infinite mourning except he who is infinite? He says like it's Christ himself who then comes to the soul and embraces the soul and comforts the soul. And this actually speaks a lot to why we pray for the departed and we pray for their repose. Like we pray for their rest. Yeah. May so-and-so rest in peace. What's that? What's, what are they resting from? Like, again, are they like, are they tired? You know, like, no, it's not, they're, it's not like a physical tiredness, you know. But it's to rest from the remorse of not having returned such a great love with love but having returned it with infidelity, with betrayal, you know. But the image here is so beautiful that it's Jesus himself who then comes to the soul and says, they're there, like, let's forget about the past. Let's move on to paradise. Let's move on, let's move on to, all, to, 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 to greener pastures, you know. It's a beautiful image. And so... The same thing, all the nations will mourn. You know, another kind of understanding of it. Whether in, apocalyptically, like, you know, the fullness of the love of Christ is, is revealed in, in his revelation, in his second coming, or to the soul of the individual person, you know, uh, when they depart. So that kind of finishes 12 for us. We haven't really touched 13 yet, but we'll... Uh, but we'll uh, We'll, we'll go through it quickly, and then we've already kind of cherry-picked in 14, and we'll, we'll finish it up um, as we go. So, uh, uh, yeah, Auntie Sue, please. What, what is, what's the significance of the Mount of Olives splitting part of the north and part of the south? What, what does that mean? Sure. It's an excellent question. I didn't get into it. So... Um, uh, was it in 12? He said that they will lay siege to Jerusalem, right? And I don't know if you guys remember from previous times, I was talking about times of siege were, were horrible. To lay siege to a city, uh, like just to, to review, is like a, 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 an offending army would come and would surround the city, cut off the food, cut off the water, and just... The people will either starve to death or surrender, one or the other. Usually it would take a few months um, and the people would, would come out. Usually also out of hunger and misery and suffering, hardship, the people turn on each other, you know, and, and they start to fight each other. Um, by then, if they want to cut it short, the, uh, the, the attacking army might, might break through the walls or something. But sometimes they would just wait it out. They don't have to, they just wait it out for two, three months. And so on, right? So it was talking about how Jerusalem would be laid siege a little bit earlier, right? And he's saying here that he will split the Mount of Olives and he'll make like this huge valley and then the people in Jerusalem will come out, you know? So this idea of splitting the Mount of Olives is to like creating a pathway. It's almost a similar image to like Moses parting the Red Sea, creating a path where there was no path creating a way where there was no way. Again, it's very, per like this is very, it's very easy to take this very, in a very personal way. You know, when, when all the doors before you were closed, God created a new path where there was none. He created a door where there was a wall, you know. Yes, this option, my life is closed. This option, my life is closed. That option, my life is closed. That option, my life is closed. There's only four doors around me and they're all closed and they seem to be like bolted shut. 
you know, and all of a sudden God opens a, you know, a secret passage through the wall, you know, through the bookcase, you know, like, uh, so to speak, you know. Um, and then he says here, where does he say it? Where does he say it? Um, then you shall flee through my mountain valley. Uh, uh, the, the, the verse right after, uh, right after I will split, split the, the Mount of Olives was 14.4. 14.5 says, Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal, like a very far place. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. You know, so Jesus will lead them out of the siege and all the saints with him. Yeah. Again, can be understood apocalyptically or can be interpreted spiritually, personally, you know, for our own, for our own uh, personal, sal my own personal salvation. Um, I was very curious about that and I read about it. What I read was saying, it was not so much saying that they would mourn separately, although it says clearly that they mourn separately, but that everyone will mourn. So if you look like the different characters, David, the, the sovereignty, the kings will mourn. Nathan, the prophets will mourn. Um, uh, Levi, the priests will mourn, right? And these three roles were the three roles given to Adam and Eve to be kings, priests, and prophets, right? Um, and then the family of Shimei, also priests, will mourn, right? Uh, and so on. So uh, this idea of separation, I didn't find anything about it, but that he lists them to say that like every, everyone will mourn. It's not like the priests will be rejoicing, no. Um, but they, they, will all, they will all mourn when they see the one whom they pierced. Uh, chapter 13. Let me just uh, let me just as you, as you you read a verse and I'll and I'll explain really quickly because it's not um, none of this is is terribly difficult to understand with a little bit of help. So this whole chapter here is about how God will remove all idolatry, all false worship, right? So. And this is really, and again, I shared this with you guys maybe last week or the week before, but I really read these words with hope, even if they sound sometimes kind of violent or aggressive. And I don't necessarily read them as like, oh, the bad guys are going to pay. No, like I look at my own self-destructive tendencies. I look at my own idolatry. I look at the, the things that seem to have control over my soul that I wish didn't have control over me. And I rejoice that, you know what? The... The, 
you know, the, my gluttonous tendencies, my this tendencies, that, that my that tendencies, my tendencies to anger, my irritability, my pride, my, will one day it will be conquered and my soul will be, will be free to worship God in holiness and purity, right? And so he says in that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. So this image of this fountain that is that will wash everything away. If we read this in contiguity with the end of, of Zechariah 12, he says, and they will, when they see the one whom they pierced, and it's almost like it's the piercings of Christ that are producing this fountain, you know? And in, there's a beautiful fraction. It's called the fraction for the only begotten son, the uh, prayer towards the very end of our divine liturgy is called it's called the fraction, and, and there's many, the priests can choose from many different ones. There's ones for the season that we're in and so on, but in, if we're in an annual season, general season, there's a whole bunch. And there's one uh, called for the only begotten son. And in it, it talks, he, he, he says, like he's saying almost with a tone of gratitude, Lord, and you have opened for us your side, like the piercing of the spear and the cross, that a fountain should should come from it, you know, to wash us of our sins. And we entered into your side, it's saying, and like an entering in, we entered into paradise. It's really, um, it's really beautiful. This image of almost Christ being the wellspring from which this fountain comes, which cleans us, right? Which is directly related to him whom, who was pierced. Then in verse 2, um, he will cut off the names of the idols from the lands and they shall no longer be remembered. He shall also cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to depart from the land. This is very important and very controversial and I'm probably going to lose all of my uh, religious tolerance points in, in all in one fell swoop right now. In the Psalms it says, and all the gods of the people are idols and they are demons. <laughs> Quite simply as that right so idolatry here which is the religions of the other lands all the idols from the lands are equated to the unclean spirits and they will depart they will be done away um, i know that's a very broad statement to say that anything other than the worship of god the holy trinity as he is understood in the church is demonic right and people make a big fuss about like satanism and satan worshipers and this and that but when you talk to anybody who is a little bit more like like spiritually acclimatized they don't really make too like it's no big deal if you worship satan or if you worship anything else quite frankly you're essentially worshiping an idol which is a lie which is a creation not the creator right which is demonic quite frankly as simple as that Inclu including oneself the, the the russians in their in their um in their kind of like equivalent of desert spirituality they don't have deserts but their ascetic spirituality they really reduce like something down to the most common denominator you know like you you would rarely say like like eight-tenths. You would reduce it to the lowest common denominator, four-fifths, right? And they basically, they reduce uh, it down to the lowest common denominator, sin that is 
to basically one sin, which they call prelest, which is idolatry. But it's a very particular form of idolatry. It's the worship of an idol, other, which is other than the worship of the true God. Worship, worship idolatry is to worship a creation rather than the creator. It's basically what it comes down to, whether it's wood or stone or whatever it is, right? But it's not just any idolatry. It's to worship a creation, which is myself. You know? And they say that the lowest common denominator of any sin is actually this self-idolatry where I have replaced the God of heaven with myself. And God says, thou shalt not steal. But I look at this thing that this other person has and I say, I'm entitled to that. And I take it. So now God's word is don't take it. My word is take it. And who do I listen to? Me. So who is God? Me. And I'm right. God is wrong. So they, they kind of, that's the, the, the lowest common denominator that they reduce sin down to is exactly like you're saying. And, they call, and it's a Slavonic term, prelest. It's kind of like, like when we say nostalgia, like you could explain what nostalgia is in six sentences, or you could just use the, I think, Latin word nostalgia. You know, so sometimes we borrow words from other languages because it's easier than trying to you know, come up with a convoluted definition. So we, they just use this word prelest, which is an old Slavonic word. Uh, it shall come to pass, uh, uh, 13.3, it shall come to pass that if one still prophesies, so they're now they're talking about this, these prophets that say prophecies. So here they're talking about false prophets that prophesy and they say, God says da 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 da, but God didn't say nothing. <laughs> but they're just inventing things for their own uses. And he's saying that in this time, when people come to worship God truly for who he is, no one will tolerate this anymore. Even the, like the father and mother of a false prophet, when the truth is revealed, if he insists to, on, on prophesying false prophecies, says they will thrust him through, like this image of them thrusting him through with a spear. So, and, that, that, and this is what Jesus talks about when he says, I will turn a father against his children, children against their parents, a son-in-law against his father-in-law, his daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and so on, right? He's talking about how when truth is revealed, all of a sudden anything that is not Part of that truth is no longer to tolerable. Yesterday, somebody was having a, a conversation with me and asking me, "How is it possible that Jesus tells us, you know, if you do not love father, if you do not love, like, if you love father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children, lands, properties more than me, you cannot be my disciple?" What's Jesus saying there? Jesus is not saying you you can't be my disciple. Like the prerequisites to take physics three hundred one are two hundred one and one hundred one. So a prerequisite to be my disciple is. You can't love. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, like, you're not gonna, you're not gonna make it. You know, Jesus is telling me, like, if you want to run a marathon, you know, you're, you're, you you can't carry like a four liter water bottle because that's four kilos. You can't afford to carry for forty two kilometers, right? So you're gonna you're gonna have to travel light. You know, you're gonna have to let go of some stuff if you want to make it the whole way if you want to make it to the finish line um it's like a word to the wise right um and this business of i will turn a father against his children and children against their parents and so on that jesus says right 
we saw that happen literally in the era of persecution, and we see that happen even until now. There's people in our church who, having accepted Christ as adults, were persecuted by their own families, were locked up and, and starved and beaten, and, and they literally had to run away from home naked, literally, to escape, right? But when you ask this person, like, why, would, why don't you just, like, shut up? Like, and just say, like, like okay, I'm not going to be a Christian or whatever. And they look at me as if, like, like I ask them this question almost provo- provocatively, you know. And they look at me and they would say, how? How can you know the truth and then accept to live what you now know to be a lie? How can you brush your teeth and look at yourself in the mirror? How can, you, how can you know that what you're doing is not what you ought to be doing and not do something about it? St. Victor is called St. Victor, son of Romanos. Like all of the saints are given a title. So St. Victor's name is St. Victor, the son of Romanos. Why was he not given like, like, like St. Victor, the great martyr, like, like, He's almost considered to be like equal to St. George. St. George, the Prince of Martyrs. So St. George gets the Prince of Martyrs. St. Victor gets Son of Romanos. Like, why does he just get his last name? You know, why doesn't he get like some big fancy title? You know, you want to know why? Because who, who brought him to persecution? Who brought him into court? His dad. Who oversaw his torture? His dad. When the emperor was tired of torturing him and said, let's just behead him. Who went and told the emperor, look, he is so popular amongst the people and the poor and the people of Antioch that if you behead him, you're going to raise up a riot. I have a better idea. Send him to Arianus, the governor of Ancena in Alexandria, in Egypt. He is ruthless. He will just continue to torture him until you've long forgotten that he exists, until you send a command to behead him. He'll be in pieces by then. Who said that? His dad. And St. Victor all of this time was praying for the conversion of his father. That's why he's called son of Romanos. Because his, 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 his torture was not only physical but his own father was you know the architect of his suffering and he accepted it he accepted all of that willingly with gratitude what a formidable human being it makes him larger than life very 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 one is at a lack for words, right? But Jesus' words are true, right? That those who choose to love a lie will love it more than they love their loved ones. Those who choose to love the truth will also choose to love it more than they love their loved ones. So that that brings us halfway down uh, chapter 13. 
and then chapter 14, uh, chapter 13, and then the second half of chapter 13, he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, with a capital S, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Jesus said, quoted this, uh, this uh, prophecy, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered in Matthew 26 and in Luke 12 on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to Palm Sunday to, you know, and he says, strike the sheep. And what's the job of the shepherd? To gather the sheep. So if you strike the shepherd, then what will happen to the sheep? They will be scattered, right? And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, and one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through fire, will refine them as silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. You'll find a, a, a word which is commonly used in the prophecies is a remnant. Um, and this is an example of it. And... So this business of I will make them go through fire is kind of this image of refining, of a, like a, a refiner takes a precious metal, gold, silver, and puts it in the fire and keeps rubbing it in the fire, you know, brings it out of the fire, rubs it, rubs it, rubs it to try to get all the, the, the dross, the alloyed metal and dirt and dust and, and, and rock out of it so that, so that it's pure. And when it from rubbing it and rubbing it around it becomes so shiny, becomes that if it's silver, he can see his own reflection in it, the restoration of the image and likeness of Christ, of Christ that we were created in. So that kind of sums up, that kind of sums up chapter 13. And then chapter 14, we, uh, we read the first, uh, the, the first, uh, um, sorry, chapter 14, we read through through to uh, about verse seven. Yeah. Um, through to verse seven. Yeah. So we can continue. Maybe um, uh, Messel, you can read for us uh, verse eight. Um, and again, I'll kind of interrupt you and, and just explain things, and we'll wrap it up. And in that day shall be that living water shall flow from. Toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name is one. So this business of the Lord is one and his name is one means there will only be one God, and there will only be one God who is worshipped, right? Which is also kind of very similar to what we read in chapter 13 all the idols will be destroyed there will be no other gods god will be the only god what's this business of a river will come out of jerusalem well you know you just need to look at a map for a second to see that all of the major cities of antiquity were by a river right they're all by a large body of water jerusalem is the only exception jerusalem actually was not by any by, by any river or any large body of water. It was, it's not that far from the Mediterranean, but Gaza is to, is to the west of Jerusalem, uh, which was occupied by the Philistines on and off, on and off, on and off, 
right? And then the Jordan River is about, how long did it take us to get to the Jordan River, Tansu, do you remember, from Jerusalem? Yeah, you know, a few, few hours by car, a couple of hours by car. So, anyways, a long distance in that time, right? So he's saying, he's saying, but now a river will come out of Jerusalem. Flip to the very end of your Bible, Revelation, right? 22, right? Verse 1, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life which bore fruits and so on and so on. Why was it so significant that there be a river? Well, you know, having some, you know, an Egyptian heritage, and later on we're going to see Egypt mentioned in a minute, that... The, 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 the banks of a river were typically very fertile. Why? Because the river would flood, would overflow, and would naturally irrigate those areas, right? And so the, this idea of the river is like life and is like um, fruitfulness, right? And so he says a river will appear, like so, kind of out of nowhere, coming out of Jerusalem, and it's going to go to the east and to the west, and it's going to give life to everything along its way. And why is it so significant? Because what's the body of water to the west? Well, the Mediterranean Sea. What's the body of water to the east? The Dead Sea, right? And so the idea that, the, that, that this river would give life to the Dead Sea is, like, all, like is, is almost... Uh, an exaggeration. Why is the Dead Sea the Dead Sea? Well, because the concentration of salt in the Dead Sea is something like 12% or something, you know? Um, you, get, you get just a drop of that, you know, just a, a mist of that in your eyes and it like stings you like no tomorrow telling you from experience, right? Uh, I think it does. I think there is, there is like a, there is a connection between the two. I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember what it is, but that sounds about right, yeah. So, um, so this idea that there would be a river which would be like its flow would be enough to bring the salt level down in the Dead Sea. So this, isn't, this isn't like a, a, a stream or a creek, you know. This is like, oh, this is like, this is like the, you know, St. Lawrence River, the Amazon River, the Nile River. This is, like a, this is like a massive river that would be able to bring life to the Dead Sea, right? All the land shall be turned... Oh, sorry, please go ahead. Verse 10. 14.10. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate in the corner gate, from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. So these are, uh, these are uh, like uh, cardinal points, like extreme points to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, of the city of Jerusalem. And he's saying basically the whole city, from wall to wall, from north to south, to east, to west, is going to be is going to be inhabited. Why is that so significant? Because when Nehemiah came back to rebuild Jerusalem, he could just, by the skin of his teeth, gather 50, 
50,000 people, you know. They weren't, they weren't enough to inhabit like a corner of the city, you know. Um, so he's, say, he's saying it will return back, it will be full of life and it will be inhabited. Verse 11. The people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction. But Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Same theme. Mm -hmm. And 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fight against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and rise and, sorry, and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel, and great abundance. So here, when we mention this kind of like, it's like that Gideon, that, that almost Gideon image of the enemy which surrounded Jerusalem, which laid siege to Jerusalem, which tormented Jerusalem, all the nations of the earth that gathered against Jerusalem, you know, will self-destruct, you know. Um, and all the spoil of, of, the, of the earth will all, will all be, like, for the taking, really. It will become of no value, you know, like uh, all of these things, gold, silver, apparel in abundance, their value is their scarcity, you know. But once they're no longer scarce, they will no longer have any value. Only God will carry value at that time. Mm -hmm. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and on the donkey, and on all the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall the plague be. So here I think he's just... You know, God is not like uh, into animal cruelty or anything like that, very much the opposite. But I think here he's just saying that like everything that is not devoted to the worship of God will be obliterated, you know. Again, I mean, I don't read this in a vindictive sense against like the those 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 terrible non-Christians out there. Not at all. I read this I read this about like the struggle of my own soul, you know, that the things that have tormented the desire of holiness in me will be obliterated forever, down to the last mule, down to the last donkey, down, down to the last, the last little bit of it will be completely, you know, obliterated. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up so this part now here you can read from here till pretty much the end he's talking about now all of a sudden those who are left in Jerusalem right and those the remnant that we're talking about and those who are left from all the other nations they're going to come and they're going to celebrate the feast of tabernacles and I think you can probably I don't know I think you can keep reading till the end I don't know if I'm going to interrupt you go ahead Strikes the nations 
who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot of Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Glory be to the Holy Trinity, our God, unto the ages of all ages. Amen. So what is this business of the Feast of Tabernacles? You know, and, and it's like they're going to be celebrating this Feast of Tabernacles forever and ever. And everybody's going to come up to this feast. And whoever doesn't come to this Feast of Tabernacles isn't going to get any rain, which means that like their agricultural economy will, will cease to exist. They'll basically starve to death and they'll be gone, right? And then he, he, he mentions Egypt, where you know, it was well known that Egypt was really survived on the flooding of the Nile. So it was, you know, if the Nile of Egypt didn't flood in a, for a year... There was no irrigation. There was no agriculture. I mean, the, 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 basically, even from a military perspective, the country was at risk, you know? So very highly, highly dependent on, on agriculture and on, uh, and on water, right? And so rain here is seen as a blessing. For us, we see the weather and it's raining and we're like, oh, it's raining, you know? But for the, for, for the farmer, uh, rain was seen as a blessing. What's this business of the Feast of Tabernacles? If you look in Leviticus 23, we don't necessarily have, have to go uh, and read about it specifically, but you'll find seven feasts, seven great feasts for the, that the people had to, had to celebrate, one of which was the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles commemorated the wanderings of the, of the people of Israel through the wilderness and the fact that they were brought into the Promised Land and it was at the time of the harvest, so it was a feast of thanksgiving. So he's saying that after all of this and after the apocalypse and after the Armageddon and after the second coming and after all of this, we'll be, we'll be celebrating this perpetual feast of thanksgiving and of remembrance of where we came from and where God has brought us to. And so we can understand it as a feast of thanksgiving. The other six feasts will no longer be celebrated. Well, why? Well, because they'll have been fulfilled. The Passover, the Passover lamb is Christ himself. No more need, to, no, no, no more need for the Passover. The Feast of Atonement, you know, the, the Yom Kippur, the great day of fasting and mourning, Christ is our atonement. No more need for that either. And so on and so on. And if we go through all of the feasts, the feast of first fruits is Jesus and the resurrection. He is our first fruit, the first one to rise from the dead, right? So he is perpetually our, our, uh, our uh, first fruit. Um, the week-long feast of unleavened bread is the, the life of the church today. Pentecost, which was celebrated, which is also a feast of harvest, um, is is now replaced by Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the ongoing life of the Holy Spirit in his people and so on. And so we find that all of the other feasts have been fulfilled. The only one which is, which never is, is never enough, you know, is, 
a feast of thanksgiving to God. And to thank God for what he has done, it's very helpful to remember where we've come from, right? And so this last bit here is saying that anyone who refuses to thank God for what he has done, they will have no blessing. They will have no sustenance. You know, the rain, like we said, is related to agriculture, related, related to, 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 to one's daily bread, right? And then there's this bit of holiness to the Lord, right? And it says, shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. What does that mean? The bells of the horses were made of like, like iron or copper at best, you know? Holiness unto the Lord was engraved on a, on a gold band on the turban of the high priest, you know? So it's saying here that whole, even the most mundane things made of iron and clay, right, will become holy. There will be no more divide between the secular and the sacred. Everything has become sacred. Everything has become holy. Everything has become, its purpose has become for the worship of the true God. And this is the truth of the life of any Christian. As as we examine our lives, we find that things in our lives which were mundane previously or whatever could be for the worship of God. Uh, Mother Basilia Schlink wrote a beautiful tiny little book called My All for Him where she talks about how she, she found herself bored. She was a mother superior. She was the, the, the mother superior of a convent. and She found herself bored of her monastic life. I'll end with this story. What a disaster. Like she's the mother superior and she's finding this pursuit of holiness in monasticism boring, you know. And who could blame her? I mean, you know, there's 40, 50 nuns every day you wake up. You know, it's the same people. There's no new faces. There's no new stories. Everything's just the same. And it's the same, it's the same schedule every day. There's prayers in the morning and then there's liturgy and then there's this and then there's that and so on, right? Everybody goes to their work and then they have some rest and then they gather for their evening prayers and then they go to bed and then they do it all over again the same day. You know, it's the same people. And, and she found herself distressed, like that she's bored. Like, what's she going to do? And she was thinking about this while she was washing a dish. Best for you to read it for yourself. My All for Him by Mother Basilia Schlink. Anyways, she finds herself washing this dish. She puts it down in the dish rack and she looks at it and there's a spot on the dish. So she takes the dish back and she's, it's not clean. So she washes it again, right? She puts it in the dish rack. The spot's still there. So she takes it again. She washes it again. And then she looks at it and it's clean. She says, ah. Now it's fit for a king. She puts it in the dish rack. And she realizes that she hasn't had this, this joy for the longest time because she was just going through the motions. And she realized that if she did things for Christ as opposed to doing them for herself or for the other sisters or for whatever, that it gave her an endless amount of satisfaction even if it's just washing a dish. So all of a sudden, something as mundane as washing dishes has led this woman to repentance and to the joy of living a life fully consecrated for God. Washing dishes, right? The bells on the horses will have holiness to the Lord written on them. Nothing in the life of a Christian is secular. Everything is sacred. What does it mean sacred? Holy. What does it mean holy? Is dedicated for God. 
So now she's not washing dishes for the other nuns anymore. She's washing them, each one of them, that they might be fit for a king, that they might be fit for Christ himself. If you and I live our lives like that, then we're already living a piece of paradise here on earth. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.